Some of you young folks been saying to me, Hey, Pops, what do you mean, what a wonderful world? How about all them wars all over the place? You call them wonderful? And how about hunger and pollution? They ain't so wonderful either. But how about listening to old Pops for a minute? Seems to me it ain't the world that's so bad, but what we are doing to it, and all I'm saying is see what a wonderful world it would be if only we'd give it a chance. Love, baby, love. That's the secret. Yeah. If lots more of us loved each other, we'd solve lots more problems. And then this world would be a guesser. That's why old Pops keeps saying. see trees of green, red roses too, I see them blue for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue. Clouds of white, the bright blessed day, the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The incomparable Louis Armstrong views the world as it could be, a wonderful world. But how do we create a wonderful world? Satchmo, Solution to Violence. And our guest today, April Lawson, answers that question with two words. Love, baby. Welcome, friends. You are listening to Solution to Violence, and we are glad you have joined us. Solution to Violence airs on WFMP 106.5 FM radio. Following as part of WFM's public affairs educational programming, the views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutiontobalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is April Lawson. We welcome you as our guest today on Solutions to Violence, April. Thanks, it's great to be here. And thank you for joining us in our pursuit of nonviolence. April Lawson is the administrator of Braver Angels, debate strategy and lead voice in public facing communications. Alarmed by the growing mistrust between Republicans and Democrats in the aftermath of the 2016 election, a bipartisan group of Americans came together to create Braver Angels. The idea resonated with April Lawson. Lawson now leads Braver Angels Debate and Public Discourse Program. She designed Braver Angels Debates and has grown the program from its first debate to serving over 1,000 participants per month. She oversees a team of 50 volunteers and staff to administer all Braver Angels Debate work and is lead voice in public-facing communications. Previously, Ms. Lawson provided research and editing for David Brooks weekly column at the New York Times. Most recently, she co-founded and served as the associate director for David 
Brooks, a new Aspen Institute initiative titled WEAVE, the Social Fabric Project. Lawson has worked at the U.S. Treasury Department, the New Haven Mayor's Office, and as senior consultant of Booz Allen Hamilton. She grew up in Kansas, studied anthropology at Yale, and now lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, Dan, and her dog, June. April, you grew up in Kansas. Tell us about growing up in your home state and what experiences have brought you from Kansas to your position as director of debates for Braver Angels Organization. Yeah, well, thank you for asking. And <laughs> you've just reminded me of it all, thankfully, by reading my my little blurb there. So I, I do appreciate that. I'll try not to be redundant. So I grew up in Kansas and that was really important for me as a, a part of this path because I my my parents, my family is very liberal, but we grew up in, in a quite a conservative evangelical place. And so from like day one, I was translating when I would I would hear things at home and I would walk out the door and then I learned to speak a rather different language out in my community. And then I would come home and think about how to say those things to my family. And so I just feel a little like I was born bilingual in in a sort of metaphorical sense. And then I will say I didn't I I felt kind of <laughs> when I was young I wanted to go someplace that things actually happened where stores and places stayed open after 9 p.m. And so I went to <laughs> I went to Yale and something interesting happened there which is that I thought that I was just a regular old Democrat and that the liberal arguments were obviously the right ones because that's what I had heard from my parents or or their, their arguments were really good. It's not that they said, you know, that the other ones were dumb or anything, just that their arguments were really good. But then when I got to Yale, I started reading books by people like Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk and some of the G.K. Chesterton, some of the, the thinkers that I had never encountered before. And I discovered that actually that I had never, I hadn't met that kind of conservative ever and that kind of thought. And I was really compelled by it. And so kind of to my parents' chagrin, I went to Yale and became a conservative and they were like, what, how did this happen? <laughs> that's not where that's supposed to happen. But I had the same experience of of translating, of saying, okay, so there's this religious concept or this traditional concept. How do I say that to somebody who comes from a really different background in a way that makes sense to them? And so I have just believed my whole life that there are people with really good hearts on both sides of the divide and that they can understand each other and we can work through this stuff. It's really difficult, but we've got to we can't give up on it. It is possible. There are ways to make it easier. And we've just got to hang in there. A Braver Angels is a national movement to bridge the partisan divide, according to Stephanie Stanford of The Elective that was published in June of 22. It's a solutions-oriented educational magazine, the college board. April, as director of Debates for Braver Angels, you see curiosity and community as, as a solution to civic polarization. But polarization is more than just disagreements at this place in time, especially in the United States. People just don't seem to agree in many different ways. We, we become tribal in, in some ways. What do you think is driving the extreme partisanship? It's a great question. And there's more than one good answer to that. You are correct that it has gotten much worse and that that's, it's not, that's not just in, in our heads. Like it's, it is actually statistically demonstrably worse. And the the two primary ways that's true, 
are with regard to affective and uh, polarization and negative polarization. And so what that means is that, and I think this is important to understanding what's driving it. So affective polarization is, it's not just that I disagree with you, it's that I don't like you. Uh, I think you're a bad person. And negative polarization is it's not that I like my team. I just hate those guys so much that I'm going to vote for these people. So unfortunately, it's not that people are so compelled by their own side. It's that they are motivated by fear and other negative emotions towards the other side. And so that's the kind of thing that we're seeing more of. Now, what's causing it? I would say that there are a couple big factors. One of them is, so first of all, the time frame we're talking about is the last 50 to 70 years and where, where this has been getting worse. And the uh, two of the major causes are the development of technology, right? So first, the 24-hour news cycle incentivized people to, uh, politicians especially, to speak in sound bites rather than actual, <laughs> actual arguments and to be just constantly campaigning to, uh, there was a transparency push that caused politicians to be less able to have conversations with people on the other side because it, would, it was public and their, their constituents didn't like that. And then of course, social media, right? The internet has just amplified all this a hundredfold. And then the other big factor, I think, is is the breakdown of community. So one of the reasons I think community is part of the answer and that this that some of the best work on this is done in person is that it's much harder to hate somebody if you know where they're coming from and if you're looking them in the eye. And the part of what has changed in our society, and, and Bob Putnam and others have done a lot of good work on this, is that 50 years ago or 70 years ago, the normal thing to do was to grow up in your town and stay there and to, you know, you would know a lot of different kinds of people. And just by necessity, you would have a fair number of interactions with people who disagreed with you substantially and were really quite different from you, not necessarily demographically, but in terms of the way that they looked at the world. And these days we are so self-segregated um, ideologically that people, I mean, <laughs> one of the common reasons for joining Braver Angels is a, a liberal will say, I just don't know any Trump voters, or a conservative will say, I have never met a liberal that I that I can actually talk to. And so it's there's been this massive uh, differentiation of people into those those tribes such that they only interact. And then of course the, the internet creates echo chambers. And <laughs> at this point, we basically don't know each other. It's not just that we don't like each other, it's that we don't know each other and that makes the other side a lot easier to hate. It also is part of why a lot of the most significant conflict people run into with this is in families because you don't choose your family, right? And you stick with them for the most part. And so that's one of the few places that you will almost certainly run into somebody who thinks really differently from you. But it also means that some of the most intense, and in my opinion, just sad pressure on this that uh, that's a function of this social issue is in families. Well, I, I expect most of our audience have experienced a Braver's Angel debate. If I understand correctly, it's not a political debate, but where competing candidates attempt to win votes, nor a high school or college debate where people advocate positions they may not believe in, but argue a point to, for the purpose of eliminating the, the opponent and, and go further in the uh, competition. So give us a sense of what we might expect in a Greater Angels debate. Is it freewheeling, high-structured? Are there rules? Is there a winner or loser? How, how does Braver Angels debate differentiate itself from other forms of debate? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, and it's that's a very important thing to clarify because 
when I say the word debate, often people look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> They're like, you can't, I just had a debate with my mother-in-law and we're not speaking. Like, what do you mean <laughs> debate helps people bridge? But I, I think it's uniquely important for a couple of reasons, which, which we can get into, but it's important to, to center the conflict rather than sort of working around it. So we can get into that, but as for what it is, so the first thing we say is that this is not a the kind of debate you see on TV between presidential candidates where they don't talk, where they just talk past each other. And it's also not the competitive kind where your objective is victory. We say that Braver Angels debate is defined by a collective search for truth. That's the spirit of it. And that's really important. And so the, yeah, the first thing to know is that it's a collective search for truth. The second thing is that we, because of that, we ask that people say what they actually believe. And so we're not just looking for an airtight case that has all the right statistics. We're looking for people to say, well, this is this is what matters to me. This is why I believe this. This is my life experience that leads to this. So, so sincerity. And also we want people to say, and I'm not sure about this part, or I really don't know what to do on this question, or that point on the other side, like, I'm actually pretty persuaded by that. So, and those parts are really important because they are disarming to the other side and they help people see that the folks on the other side are trying really hard to answer a tough question, just like you are. And so this is, it's not a matter of, I have a better, a better case. <laughs> it's a matter of, it feels more like a, a, a carefully structured conversation. The two other things I'd say about it that are definitive are everyone in the room is allowed to speak. And so we do a lot of these on college campuses and people assume that only the students get to give speeches. Oh no, professors can speak if they're in the room. The janitor can speak if they're in the room. We've had our videographer give speeches. It's, and the, the reason is that just like in our country, we actually need all the voices. Like we can't, if we wanna to get to the right answers, we have to have everybody offering what they know and what they have and what they have experienced. And so everyone in the room is allowed to speak. And my favorite people to watch, by the way, are the, there are always people who walk in and they kind of, you know, they sit in the back or they like, they like have their little notepad and they're just sort of like, they clearly like are not going to speak. That's like their opinion. They're not going to speak. And then you watch them and like their faces change and they're like, well, but, but I really don't agree with that. Or I really think that this question should be asked. And then all of a sudden, they're raising their hand and they're asking a question. And then a few minutes later, they're raising their hand and speaking. And the first thing they say is, I was not going to make a speech, but I was just so moved by this conversation or by whatever that, that I had to get up and say something. And so it's fun to watch people, people blossom that way. And we work hard to create a space that feels empowering such that people are feel that that's like some, a good idea for them. And I guess the, the last thing I'd mention is that we follow a very loose parliamentary procedure structure. So what you should visualize is not two people at podiums on a stage. It's like a group of people sitting in a circle or a ring of circles. It's a more like a forum kind of, and there's one person who's the chair, they have a gavel and they're running things, but the people who get up and speak stand in the middle of the circle and they don't face the chair, they face everybody else because the idea is you're talking to your peers. And we have a couple basic rules that like stand up when you talk, things like that. But there's only one that's sort of really important that we do enforce, even though it's new for folks. It's called addressing the chair. And what that means is that anytime someone is speaking verbally, they speak as though they're talking to the chair. And so rather than, you know, if, if Jim, you've just given a great speech on why gun control regulation is so important and Jamie 
wants to, you're a, you're a gun owner and you want to say, okay, but why do you think that? Like, what about the second amendment or whatever? Rather than saying, Jim, why do you think that? Which can feel real personal. You would say, Madam Chair, the previous speaker said this, I'd like to know why he thinks that. And so we put it in the third person, which it just turns down the heat. And so what it does, the reason I think this works is that it means people can show up with all their passion and with all their arguments, with all the energy that they want to put out there and all their the reasons that they care, but it doesn't come at the recipient in a way that feels personal. And so it means that you can get a really lively, spirited conversation going that where, where a lot of stuff can come out, but where people can see that the other side is just people, they're trying, and sometimes they change their minds, and the specific interactions don't feel quite so inflammatory. Yeah, I think that speaks to my next question, but you may want to um, go a little further with this, but how do you make sure that Braver Angels debates stay fair-minded? I've seen the term coded language used. Can you define that for us? How, how do you keep the organization working to combat partisanship from sliding into partisanship. Now, what you're what you just mentioned, I think, goes to anything else that you would like to add. Yes, to that? very much so. Thank you for that question. That's a really important question. I'll answer for the debates and then for Braver Angels as a whole. So, for the debates, I sometimes think that the two fundamental principles are fairness and welcome, which is actually love. But you know, we say it in a in a sort of gentler way. But fairness is one of them. And that means that everybody's got to get the same amount of time. They have to receive the same number of questions. And it's very, and you've got to be real careful to enforce everything equally because people can tell if you don't. And so the, we, we try to create spaces that have a fundamental feeling of fairness and the, so the structure, it, the structure is intentionally set up for that. And our framing of it at the beginning is intentionally set up for that. Now, Coded language is crucial. I, I think I said earlier that I grew up code switching um, between my house, which was super blue, and my environment, which was super red, my community. And oh my goodness, like there are so many words these days that, that just mean really different things to different people. And moreover, are they're a flag, they're a, they're a little signal, they're a, an indication. So if I say undocumented immigrant or unhoused person, Usually, somebody would be like, aha, progressive. But if I say an illegal or, I mean, homeless person is more neutral, but there are coded words that like, as soon as they come out of your mouth, the other person assumes, aha, I know your politics. And it's it's when they write you off, <laughs> like they often, or they hear every, all the rest of what you say by that assumption. And this, I swear, this problem is worse than it used to be. And that's, maybe that's because of social media. I don't know. I think it is partly because of the fact that our, we live so separately, but there are so many words that are hard to, it's just very hard at a certain point to use language that somebody doesn't think indicates uh, a bias. And so Braver Angels is really attentive to this in a couple ways. The first is that we intentionally create phrases that blend a red word and a blue word. So one of our favorite phrases is patriotic empathy, uh, courtesy of our national ambassador, John Wood Jr. And patriotic, red word, empathy, blue word. And so when, but, I, but it captures something really important, right? That like, if you love your country, you've, you've got to love your neighbor too. And so, or you don't, I mean, we can argue about that, but that those things are at least deeply connected. and. So there's that. And then Braver Angels as a whole, we have something called the Braver Angels rule, which is that at every level of leadership of the organization, we're half red and half blue, quite strictly. 
So our funding is half red, half blue. Our board is half red, half blue. The people we pay are half red, half blue. Every program pretty much is led by one red and one blue. Every local chapter is led by a red and a blue. And that's because we find that what are ostensibly political differences actually reflect major cultural differences. There's a red culture in the US and a blue culture. And if we don't have both red and blue voices in the room at the beginning, like if you, frankly, if you can't get the right people in the room at the outset, it's very hard to, to not just sort of inadvertently have a culture that's either red or blue. And you won't mean to, it won't be something that anybody intended, but in the same way that with any other divide, gender, uh, if you don't have any women in the room or any men in the room, like you're going to like, that doesn't work. Race, if you don't have um, the right proportions of everybody in the room, that doesn't work. Like it's, so we, we just believe that the only way to do this is to start with that partnership and build on that foundation. I guess the next question I have is the impression I have in talking to some other similar groups, and Jim's going to talk about that in a little bit, but they have, I think, one group and you've worked with thousands of people, it sounds like. Do you have more than one group in, in these sessions? Um, more than one group of, of who? Of what? Like a, a circle of groups uh, of people talking. Is there just one group of people talking in, in uh, the debate that you have? Or are there multiple circles of, of people having oh, debates? So great question. Typically, we have more people who want to participate than than one single conversation could accommodate in a way that, I mean, you can have a debate with 500 people, but then it, you know, how many people actually get to participate, right? And so what we do when we have 500 or 1,000 people sign up is we run several simultaneous debates that each have their own share and stuff, but it's the same It's the same topic and, and at the same time and all that. And so we at present are running one or two national online Zoom debates per month. And usually we run two to four rooms. So two to four like Zoom rooms of people, each of which has up to 300. And uh, in person, we will do this also because it's, you know, it's just, there is a size after which it doesn't feel like a participatory thing anymore. And so, but we find that as long as you have enough volunteers to staff it, it's fine. And and it's also interesting because then you see different different conversations on the same subject and people come to different conclusions and they're different. Like it's, I learn things every time from, oh, in this room, we really we really went down the rights avenue, whereas in this room, we really, you know, started talking about personal stories or whatever. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. Well, this is a little lighter question, but if you had to choose now between college students and older adults or politicians as your audience for Braver Angels Conflict Resolution Option, what, which would you choose and, and why? Yeah. Well, so the first thing I have to say as as a, you know, a peacemaker is that I like all of them. <laughs> I like all of them. And they're they're different. I mean, like the college students are the most energetic, the most open. Adults have a maturity and a wisdom that can come out and a just more life experience. Politicians have a strong incentive because their workplace is being pollute is like toxic because of this stuff and so they're very motivated. But if I had to pick one, I would pick college students. And that's both because I just have a heart for them. I just do. They're they tend to be really open, really energetic. They are not, my mother commented once that adults have so much scar tissue that this is much harder. And I think that's true. Whereas young people, they're still like saying, okay, but like, how do we build a better world? And it's just, it's inspiring. And they also are consistently 
you can see that they that they are determined to do things to build a better world. And so if you can show them that it's possible to do that in relationship with people rather than by cutting out those that they disagree with, I think you can have a real impact. So, and the last thing I'll say on that subject is just that another sort of twist on this framing is it's really cool to have all three of those and those different types of people in a room because they bring out different things in each other. The adults are more the or not adults. The the older folks uh, are different when young young people are in the room, and young people are different too. And usually in quite positive ways. I find that the older folks are a little bit lifted up and inspired by and sort of caring towards the younger people, and the younger people are they're trying to really like bring their best <laughs> when the older folks are in the room. And then politicians add a level of seriousness, and they also tend themselves to be, I would say, nourished by the the sincerity that they see, which can be so different from what they usually experience. That's cool. Uh, you mentioned uh, negative polarization and, uh, and affective polarization. I don't know if you have more to say about that, but they're kind of similar terms. And what, what is the, maybe you want to speak to the fuel or the ingredients that make up the divisiveness of, and, and sure. that foster violent disagreements and, and negative or mm-hmm. affective polarizations. Is there mm-hmm. something else you would want to add to that? Sure. And I'm happy to, I'm glad we're going to talk about, use the word violent, which is actually an important part of this conversation. And I'm, I'm glad we're probably going to get into that a little bit in a bit. So again, for affective, it's not just that I disagree with you. It's that I, I hate you. It's that I can't, I don't, I don't want to be around you. I don't like you. I think you're a bad person. So that's your affect. And then negative is, it's similar in that it's, I hate the other guys. It's not that I like my team. I just don't like that team. And actually I would have to say that I think affective. So with regard to negative polarization, the, I just don't like the other team kind, our campaign culture is just a disaster for that. Like it's because people have discovered that it is much more effective or it's efficient at least to say the other team is going to ruin the world. They're going to, you know, your way of life will not survive or your people will, will be oppressed or whatever it is. That is the most efficient way to motivate people is to scare them. And so that's what campaigns do. And it does not have to be that way. But it's, and and actually for what it's worth, my impression is that negative campaigning doesn't, I believe the studies show that it's not that it makes people vote for the other, for, for your candidate, it's that it suppresses the vote. And so I, for example, have seen campaigns that are specifically in areas that are demographically likely to go for one one side or the other. And the negative campaigning there, I think, is often just to keep those people at home because they get so disgusted with the whole thing that they just they just can't take like be bothered. Affective polarization is the thing that I think I personally think the most about. And that's it's not that I just that I disagree with you. It's that I I can't be around you anymore. Because that's that's part of what I think is new and toxic. Uh, not, I mean, it's not totally new, obviously, but it's certainly on the rise. And it's this idea that like I will cut you out of my life if you do not ascribe to my political views. And for what it's worth, I think that there are times there are times it's okay to cut off a relationship, but I don't think that it's necessary nearly as often as people think. And I think that there is a lot more assumption about if you voted for Trump, if you voted for Hillary, if you still support like no regulations at all on guns after Sandy Hook, whatever it is, right? Like there are these assumptions that about what that must mean about who you are that I think are often incorrect, but you'll never find that out if you cut people out of your life. So the affective polarization is really, that's the thing that we have in our sights most 
people and and just to say the other kind of polarization that we are not trying to address is issue polarization so that's where the the two positions on the issues just move farther and farther apart uh, i think we should take away all the guns i think we should arm everybody that would be a an example of issue polarization but <laughs> and that we're not trying to we're not trying to we're, we're working on like helping people relate to each other not trying to make everybody moderate. I think actually that America is great partly because we have so many different wild, interesting, like passionate people with with correspondingly different views. That's really uh, part of our dynamism. It's just that at present, we seem to be engaging that in a way that destroys our relationships. Okay, you make a distinction between celebrating differences then and, and a, a approving differences, advocating diversity and the ethic of tolerance. What do you mean by the term approved differences and what is the or how is that related to advocating diversity or an ethic of tolerance? I really appreciate that question. Um, I don't know if this is if I'm allowed to sort of say this, but I liked the list of questions because I feel like you guys are willing. You can cut this out if you want to, but I feel like you're willing to ask a bunch of things that that are often on people's minds, but they will not ask them. They will not come right out and, and say, what about that though? <laughs> and so um, this is in that category to me. So what I have, I've done some writing on that subject and what it, the way that I am, the thing I'm trying to describe is that there's a thing that reds often experience. This is a, a red and blue thing. So the, the bridging space, as it's called, is tends to be overwhelmingly blue folks. And that is perhaps to their credit. But again, with blue and red culture, there's this thing that happens where in a blue culture, the people talk about diversity a lot, and they say that they really care about inclusiveness and equity and all of those things. And that sounds great. And then they will often also tell me, I don't understand why red won't come. Like, why won't they come to my event? I've I've tried to reach out to them. Like, I maybe they just don't care about. Maybe they're just not interested in in talking to the other side, in like actually making some progress on this. I hear that a lot. And the thing that blues are often not understanding in those cases is that it's not that reds don't want to have the tough conversations. It's that they feel like when blues say diversity, they mean a certain specific set of things. Like it's okay to be different with the regard to the color of your skin. It's okay to be different with regard to if you have a foreign sounding name. It's okay to be different with gender identity. It's okay to be different in these ways, but it's not okay to be different politically. And the <laughs> the funny thing is, and, and forgive me, but in my experience, blues tend to say, well, I, I can handle political difference. There's this libertarian person I know, or this guy who thinks that taxes should be low. And that, and I can hang out with him just fine. But where it really starts to count uh, is usually social issues. It's people who say, well, there really are just two genders and people do not get to decide. Or it's the, it's, it's stuff that I think for blues often feels like it participates in oppression. And the problem is that reds hear diversity and think, aha, you say you want diversity, but I'm different in a way that you don't approve of. I'm different in a way that isn't, isn't acceptable to you. And you don't actually want to listen to me. You want to educate me or enlighten me. And then they don't come. And then blues think that it's because they don't want to bridge. And then we get nowhere. And so the, the ethic of tolerance is, oh, that's actually another thing. So you mentioned the ethic of tolerance. I think that tolerance is a great first step, right? Not killing each other, great first step. <laughs> but but that's not sufficient for our society to live together because what tolerance is, is it's ultimately, it's okay, fine. You believe that way, just stay on your side of the fence. But it's not strong enough to hold us together. What is strong enough is love because love says, I love you for what you are. I love you knowing who you are. 
I want to be close to you with all the things that that means, not I will put up with you as long as you stay on the other side of the room. And so I think that I approve of tolerance, but I want us to move beyond it. And I approve of, obviously, we all approve of diversity, but we have to make sure that we will don't define it in such a way that we force some people out of the room implicitly. And so I guess the answers are are the old ones. It's just love. And that's the, we all have experiences of being in relationship with people that we know where like, so, so what do I mean by love? Well, if you think about your relationship to your mother or, you know, your cousin or your best friend or whoever, the often family relationships really are the best examples here, but, but there are others. Typically you like the person for the things that are specific to them and for the things that are, that make them different from you, not the things that make them the same as you. And I think that in, when we look to reach out, we often will first uh, we will believe that like the way to bring people together is to help them see that they're the same. But the thing about love is that love difference is what makes love delightful most of the time, right? And so it's a matter of, and and love is also resilient enough that when somebody that you care about does something where you're like, man, I think that was a mistake. You still, you hang in there. And it might be that part of the way you love them is trying to talk them out of it, right? Or trying to, but you do that in the context of we're going to, we're going to stay in relationship for the most part. And because I love you, man. And like, we're going to, we're going to work through this. So that's the thing that I mean there. I like tolerance. Uh, I just think that love is, we need something stronger and that's love. Yeah, I've got one more question. We're going to turn it to Jim because uh, it sounds like you're talking about something that's very similar. Deep differences cause conflict in, uh, in a sense that you talk about embracing conflict. What do you mean about, about that? You've spoken a little bit about that. What, what do you mean by embracing conflict? Yeah, well, so like I said, people look at me like I'm nuts um, when I when I talk about this. But I think that if you so uh, speaking of love, every relationship that matters to you, you're gonna have some conflict, right? Like, and what's interesting is that just like in a life, sometimes the hardest moments are the things you grow from the most. And often, if you can work through a conflict, you are much closer than you were before. And that, you know, it can take some time, it can take multiple attempts. Okay, avoiding conflict is a great way for example, to kill a marriage, right? Like, or to kill really most relationships because we're all different. There's going to be friction. And so I think that we are too quick in the bridging space to emphasize sameness when in fact, like the conflict is the, that's the juicy stuff. Like that's where if we can help people navigate that, there's real like growth there and real intimacy and real like people can, that's where we all change for the better. And so I think that now that that said, <laughs> it does have to be navigated, right? It's got to be done carefully. This is not something that you can just say, great, well, let's, let's fight about it. And that'll make us closer, right? But like, but if you can navigate it, that's much more powerful towards weaving together a relationship and a society than simply pointing out the ways in which we're all the same. April Lawson, a statement from your website titled, Our Story Explains, quote, yet today, there is evidence to suggest that we are now as polarized as we have been since the Civil War. Americans no longer see their political opponents as simply wrong or misguided. They see them as enemies who must be defeated at all costs, end quote. I have no problem getting along with friends or relatives who have different political beliefs. 
But I wonder, how do I relate to someone who is blatantly racist, who supports overturning a presidential election after a host of federal judges, governors, and secretaries of states have declared that election valid? How would I relate with someone who supports an act that could lead to violence? Mm -hmm. Well, like I said earlier, I'm so glad you're asking this question because I think I think it's in a lot of people's minds. But you're you're actually like like I'm excited to talk to you about this because I think this is what's underneath a lot of we don't bring it out into the open. And so I think there are a number of answers to this. But the first one is just it's very hard to relate to someone until you listen a lot to them. So I'm going to say some some things that might sound a little bit like I'm pushing. And I am in a way, but I mean it I mean it kindly. The first is what you really want, right, is to change people's minds if you think that they're really really wrong. And my question would be when's the last time you changed someone's mind by shunning them, right? Basically never. That does not happen. And the first thing to remember is that those people are coming from somewhere. And I've talked to lots of those folks and and people on in every every stripe of the the political rainbow. And they're all coming from somewhere. And it's usually actually pretty legitimate if you listen. That doesn't mean that their conclusions are correct, but typically people are making sense of their own life experiences and what they have seen in the world. And this is their conclusion. And so the first thing to remember is that if you want to relate to somebody who is in, however you define it, doing something that's morally abhorrent, the first thing to do is find out where are they coming from? Where does this come from? And if you can ask with curiosity rather than defensiveness or accusation, typically you'll find something out that's pretty interesting to you and pretty different from what you expected. So that's the first answer. The second answer is that I think that there are things in America today that are frightening and that do speak to totalitarian impulses. I would actually say that they're on both the left and the right, which makes me unpopular with everyone. But I think that that's a real concern and that we shouldn't... An easy way to do something, like I would be totally uninterested in this work if it was just about being polite. If it was about being nice and saying like, can't we just like get along? Like this is, why do we all have to be so mean? No, no, no. I think there are real problems that our society faces and real questions, real threats. And, but I think that the best way to fight them and to face them is to try to meet those people and be in relationship with them. And again, whoever those people are and understand what they love and what they're trying to defend and then help them do those things in a way that is pro-social, in a way that is not violent, in a way that allows other people the space to exist and is very, that's I think the, the right strategy. So there's a strategic question here. And <laughs> I have a friend who named Simon Greer who runs a, an organization called Bridging the Gap, which is a sort of sister organization on that works on college campuses like we do. And he's a former like legit political organizer. He worked in the Obama White House. He like was a, a campaign fighter He's like one of these people who's he's done union work, the is a very like very partisan person, um, or at least has been. And what he said told me once is that they won the Obama election in 2008 and they they got to the top. And then Trump was elected right after that. And he said, What have we accomplished? And so the thing he tends to ask people is, How's it going? If your strategy is to marginalize and make these people irre irrelevant, how is that working for you? And the answer is typically it's not working very well. And for what it's worth, I think that can be said in reverse also. I think that every side that, for the most part, has had some electoral wins in the last 15 years, and none of us have the country we want. In fact, it seems to be getting worse by most measures. And so what that says to me is we have got to work together on this. And it's not, there's, a, I think it's the, the moral thing to do, like the right thing to do. But I also think it's the practical thing to do, because it's what we are doing now is not succeeding.
Okay, April Wilson. So that answer leads to this question. I admit most of my friends identify themselves as liberal. Communicating with folks with similar political views, it's just easier. Is that the wrong mm -hmm. strategy? Should I be cultivating relationships with those with different political beliefs? Why? Mm, that's a great question. I appreciate that you make it personal too, because frankly, that's true for most of us, right? Like most people in this country have a friends group that is mostly just like them politically. And so... <laughs> whether folks would admit it or not, that's where a lot of us are coming from. And you're you're also right, it's totally easier, right? If you don't have to define your words, if you don't have to be like, wait, we disagree on a really fundamental thing, oh God, right? Like if none of that is there, it is totally easier. What I will say though, is that I think that if you wanna be part of helping our country or your community move to a better place, like that has to be done in relationship with people who are pretty different. And the other thing is, I think that there's, it's not easier, but it is more interesting. There is an adventure to be had in getting to know people who are really different from you and who are really, because honestly, they have something to teach you and you have something to teach them too, for what it's worth, but that's where you're going to learn the most. And I realize that for a blue, which is our language, right? Like I could say the same thing for reds, but for a blue, the idea of like talking to an anti-vaxxer with the idea that I get to learn things like might make you feel crazy. <laughs> like it makes lotos feel crazy on whichever side we're on. But I also think that on the other side of some of that, like, oh my gosh, how can these people think this stuff is something really worthwhile. It's a relationship that is really, again, uh, interesting. It will make you grow. And, uh, and also you'll understand this country better. The one thing that I meant to mention earlier is that, so you mentioned January 6th, you have to remember that people live in incredibly different information environments. And the one of the reasons, so Brave Angels debates do not fact check. This is one of the things we get critiqued for. And the reason is that all that would happen if I were to be like, yes, climate change was caused by people, or yes, January 6th was an insurrection or whatever from the chair, all that will happen is that the reds in the room will leave that because the trust isn't there. And I think that you've got to build the trust first before you can uh, invite people to change, to before you can expect to have any influence on someone else's views. And so the, but people live in incredibly different information environments. And typically even on, so after January 6th, we did one of our most, I think it was actually literally our most controversial event ever, which was a debate on voter fraud and which was essentially about was the 2020 election stolen. And we we had people resign. We had board members writing in, funders writing in saying, you cannot do this. You cannot platform this question. That's unethical. But what I believe about that is that if half or a third of the country believes something, we've got to address it. We just have to if we're going to do our work right. And what was interesting is that the people often realized that they just didn't know some of the stuff that the other side was caring about. So for example, one of our, he's, a, he's unfortunately passed away recently, but one of my favorite red leaders in Braver Angels is a guy named David Iwinski, who is like, was like a, a, a like committed Trump supporter, loved the guy or lived in Pennsylvania, had been a small business owner, really funny. You would look at him and you would think, oh my gosh, that guy definitely voted for Trump. But what was interesting is he spoke in that debate about voter fraud. And then other people talked about voter suppression. And what he said is, oh, I did not realize that that voter suppression was such a big issue. We've got to address both these things together. We have to make our election system good. And that means that I really care that we, that we address voter suppression too. And that does not happen, right? Unless, unless you create those spaces and walk into those relationships and tolerate the like, I don't understand how you can believe that. 
because it really is partly about information. It's just news sources and people. Frankly, I think I could have, I could believe almost anything if I listened to the right news sources in this country. So, so yeah, it's, I guess that's to say people's starting points are often from information differences, not personal differences. If you can put them in the same room and hang in there through the like, how can you think that long enough? You will often find that both people are less far apart than they think they are. And also that you'll learn a lot and you'll have some of the most interesting conversations that you can have. So April, a statement from your website proclaims, quote, we believe that all of us have blind spots. We believe that none of us are not worth talking. Okay. So the braver angels believe that we can disagree with others, but that disagreement should be conducted with honesty and respect. We should avoid exaggeration and stereotypes and disagree accurately. And we should look for common ground. I agree with that philosophy, but I find political discussions with conservatives difficult. I come from a perspective that is concerned with empirical evidence, research supported by science, mm -hmm. scientific evidence, and research composed by objective historians. It's been my experience that arguments presented by conservatives are often based on anecdotal evidence, not science. Their argument is often based on what they see in their daily lives, not research based on surveys that include at least a thousand individuals. I listen to their story, but strongly disagree. Is it not my responsibility to attempt to change their minds when I know their argument is not based on science or history documented by historians, their objective? I love this question. I love it. Um, again, I'm so like impressed that you're willing to actually ask that. I, I cannot tell you how many interviews we do where people, that's what they're thinking. It really is. And anyway, so very, very good. Um, all right. The first thing I have to say is just, and you're gonna hate this, but it's just the case that Reds and Blues both say to me, you know, I just wish the other side would argue from facts. You know, they're so, I understand that they have really strong emotions, but I just wish they would look at the facts. And so I do hear that on both sides. And I'm not saying you're wrong for what it's worth. I'm, I'm just saying per se, like, Maybe right, maybe wrong. I'm not weighing in on that, but I will say that that sense exists on both sides. So such a good question. The first thing I would say is that if you want to change someone's mind, you've got to you've got to win their trust first. It just doesn't work any other way. You can win their trust while talking about politics, but they've got to feel like you you respect them, right? And that means that you have to be at least a little bit open and curious as to what is driving where they're coming from. And I hear your respect for science and I share it. I would also say though, that, that I think that some of the critique, there is bias in almost every kind of information creation that we as a society engage in. I used to work at the New York Times. I have a lot of respect for that institution and believe in it deeply. And I would be lying if I told you that I didn't hear bias in the kinds of questions that occur to people to ask. Not in, not in, there, there's nothing conscious about it, but it just is the case that if you swim in a certain social water, the things that you, that occur to you to ask will not be the same things that, that they're, they're defined by that a little bit. And so I, uh, I think that there's just, that's worth remembering. Now, as to the idea of anecdotal versus survey-based data and empirical approaches to, to the answers to questions and, and the responsibility to educate, I would say that our responsibility is to walk with other people and to work together to pursue the truth, right? Like that's the, um, so I, I'm a person who doesn't 
shy away from the word truth. There are people who would say, well, we're pursuing something, common ground, shared agreement. I like the word truth because I think there are answers and that not all arguments are created equal and not all answers are created equal. So I share that. I also think that walking in thinking you're going to educate people usually pisses them off, frankly. Like it usually, it feels arrogant and people don't respond well to that. If you want to change somebody's mind, usually you've got to do, and which by the way, Braver Angels does not try to change people's minds. One of the things we say is we're not trying to change your mind about issues. We're trying to change your mind about each other. But I, I run a debate program within Braver Angels and like, I have no problem with people trying to persuade each other of things. I think that that's part of it, right? That's part of the democracy. But I just think that your first responsibility or mine, I'll speak in the first person, my first responsibility is to respect people and to and to like offer them dignity and that that means that usually first i'm going to ask them a lot of questions before i tell them about my perspective and that, that gets me further yeah i think i this is sort of similar to something i've already said but i think that it's just the approach of humility usually will get everybody further so for me listening to someone who has races or supports injustice or war is mm-hmm. difficult Mm-hmm. especially if I know their argument is based on anecdotal evidence, is it more important to maintain a positive relationship with that person than it is to change their mind? What have mm. I accomplished by maintaining a friendship with that person? If that person continues to support racist views or continues to support injustice? Yeah, I love this. Love this question. I guess I'm going to say a couple things. The first is, and this is actually, this is the question I prepared the most for because I think it's it's really at the heart of some of this work. And so the first thing I'll say is that there's a quote that I think is sometimes attributed to Robert Frost. I learned it from my mother. It's the only way out is through. And I believe strongly that the moral imperatives to treat other people with dignity and to improve our society are, if we do things right, they do not have to be at odds. And so the choice that you're offering of, is it more important to try to change the person's mind or is it more important to maintain a relationship with them? I would argue, let's see if we can do both. Because I, I think that it's sort of like they say that like that love is not always gentle, right? It's not always easy. Sometimes if you have a family member struggling with addiction, right? Like you cannot say, I support your choices. You cannot say, I support your lifestyle. I will, you know, take care of you no matter what you do. You can't, those, those things are not true. And so sometimes loving people, and I'm not saying that, <laughs> I'm not drawing a direct metaphor here, but I think that. Uh, love is complicated and loving what I would say, use the word fallen, but flawed people is really complicated. And sometimes it requires going through not around. And I'm a big proponent of, of face the stuff. Don't, don't try to avoid it. And so if I don't like either option of change their mind or cut them out or stay in relationship, but paper over the differences. I think that the, the thing that we should all be striving for is, is the kind of love that real people, that requires real conversation and requires real integrity and real resilience. And also some degree of vulnerability um, because you've got to say like, look, this is really hard for me and this is why, right? And so that's the first thing is the only way out is through. The second thing I would say is that, there, I mean, and again, I'm moving beyond the sort of strategic practical, the best way to change somebody's mind to have them trust you. Like that's true. But I would take it a step further too and say that one of the phrases that I care the most about is truth and reconciliation. And I care about both of those words. I care about the word truth and I care about the word reconciliation. What I mean by that is I find that there are 
generally people and organizations emphasize one of those or the other one. Either it's, I want to speak the truth. I want to speak truth to power. We're going to advocate. And the reconciliation part might be nice, but we somehow never seem to get there because the truth part never happens. Like it's never enough. And then on the other side, you have organizations that are often in my area, the bridging organizations or whatever, that paper over the truth that say like, we're going to, you know, sort of just, I remember I... I heard a story from a journalist once who told me, you know, I do reporting on sexual assault in churches and I do some work with them. And often they'll say, can we just sort of, we've had a lot of uncomfortability about that. Can we just like sort of put that down and just do the reconciliation? The answer is no, no, you can't. And I think that um, you have to have truth in order to have real reconciliation. And so with regard to things like race and the, the really deep, tough issues in our society, the only way out is through. And that actually, healing always requires transformation. It's not a matter of, and and I say healing because we're talking about frayed bonds, right? And both people have to be willing to step into a space where they could be changed. And if you do it right, and this is why I love working with Braver Angels, all that we do is create containers. People rise to the occasion. They step up. They let higher parts of themselves engage and act and and change them. It's We don't change people. They change themselves. You just have to put them in a context where they are prompted to do that and where they're willing to do that. And so I guess that's perhaps a metaphor for a more direct answer to your question, which is the I think the best thing you can do is be a space, create a space for that person to become a higher version of themselves and for you too. And so if we say one of their sins is overt racism, the question is, how do we help that person become better, like a higher version of themselves? And I would also, I guess the last thing on that subject is just, I would come back to humility a little bit because I really do. I mean, like the whole thing about we all have blind spots and no one is not worth talking to. I really believe that because again, I come from sort of a liberal house in a conservative community. I now am a conservative who lives in a liberal community. Like it's, I just, I promise you we've all got blind spots. And it's important to remember that that those people, whoever those people are, right, they're coming from somewhere and they probably have an important piece of the truth to share. You know, I'm going to say one other thing on this, if that's okay. And then I'll I'll let you move on. Or would you prefer to just go ahead? Go ahead. All right. One more thing. It's just that my in my experience, when people are really holding on to something, particularly a view that may just not make all that much sense in a certain way, they're doing it because it helps them deal with something painful almost always. And so I find that what happens is that people create stories that are often in political language or sort of cultural language about this group or that group or this structure or whatever. People are often, they create stories that help them deal with their suffering, which incidentally, I have a an avocational interest in trauma and recovery and all of that. And that's part of recovery from trauma is creating a narrative. And I could say more about that, but the bottom line is that people tend to create stories that help them deal with pain. And so the only way to help them, their story to change is for there to be some other way for them to deal with that pain. And that is that is part of why like listening to people is so important is that you can have it come into the room and have, have it acknowledged, and then they can be open to, to changing to something that is different and, and maybe less, to, to your point, less hateful. Really, we're about out of time here, so. Were there more questions? I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to go long. Yeah, there, there are a lot, there are quite a few more questions and this has been such an informative you, session. You're, you're gonna have to come back. You know that, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I also well, don't have um, a hard stop, so up to you guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, 
we started yeah. about 25 till and it's 10 till right now so that's right. 10 till 5 right now so <laughs> well april to... i hate to bring our hour to a close but we do want to give you a chance to uh, an opportunity to, to share final thoughts well i just want to say i'm really grateful for this conversation because i as i have said like it so we Braver Angels is called Braver Angels. It's not, it started off being called Better Angels, but we decided to inject the value of courage because it is so clear that in order for us to make any progress on this issue, there's a lot of courage required. And sometimes that's because you have to sit there and listen to somebody say things that, that actively hurt you. Um, and of course, I believe people should do what they need to do to support themselves in those contexts, but, but it takes courage to expose yourself to it. Right. And then it also takes courage to deal with the people on your own side who said, you did what you talked to who you're considering what? And, and <laughs> I mean, it's just true, right? We know this. And I, uh, there's a way in which one of the, an idea that I've been chewing on recently that our president, David Blankenhorn, said to me recently is that trust is an abundant good like love. It's something where, it, which apparently what an abundant good is, is if you give it, there's more of it. Like, And so there's a way in which what we do is we say, take a risk, try trusting someone just a little, right? Just a little. You don't know they're going to be nice to you. You don't know that it's going to, they might say something mean, but try it, just try it. Because if you do, often they'll surprise you and often they'll they'll respond with something really positive. And I but but again, that's a that's something that that takes courage. And so what I would just say to anybody listening is that I recommend a practice of that kind of courage in regular life. Just take a risk. And again, it won't always work out in your favor. Support yourself the way that you need to. But I have found that living that way makes my life much better. It means I have much stronger relationships and can encounter a much broader array of of people and experiences because but yeah because it if you can start with offering care offering trust offering love um good things tend to follow so love that trust trust is abundant is an abundant good is an abundant good thank mm -hmm. you our conversation today has been with april lawson cornfield director of braver angels debate strategy april lawson we so appreciate your joining us as we explore with our listeners more solutions to vice thank you once again for sharing your time and experience with us and our listeners here on forward radio thanks so much it's been a real pleasure Audience, you can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. We air Solutions to Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. The Solutions to Violence program that features April Lawson will air again January 3rd and January 4th. The program featuring April Lawson will be placed in her archives January 4th, 2023. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions of Outs program that features April Lawson. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us about our discussion today, you can reach us with the following email address, solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson, here with Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Join us again next week for more Solutions to Violence on Forward Radio 106.5 FM in Louisville, Kentucky. We wish you and yours wellness, safety, and peace in the coming new year of 2023. Until we meet again, let's make peace in our own personal way. Helping others do the same. Thank you for listening. They're really saying I love you. I hear Baker 
I think to myself 